how do we get people to just have a completely different lens on the world? So I'm often thinking about those things. And I was trying to get to that place where I could see the natural world as alive was key to that because I felt like I had lost that. I also felt like I'd lost my trust with the natural world because when the country that you live in has been through floods and fires, you sort of start to think, am I safe here? Am I, has nature got my back? Hi. And welcome to The Soft and Curious with me, Jessica Lay. Hopefully some of these conversations can inspire thoughts and ideas that can potentially have the power to change your mind on a subject or change your entire experience of this life. Now on to the show. Hi everyone. I wanted to introduce my guest today and she is Nina Karnikowski. We met through mutual friends, particularly Laura May of Nagnada fame, I want to say. <laughs> and the first time we chatted, I knew that Nina was someone I wanted to just take a deep dive with on every thought and idea she ever had because she's so interesting. When you're talking to her, she's got these big, bright blue eyes that kind of just lock in and you just feel like you're really having a discussion with someone who is genuinely tuned in to what you're saying. Nina's insightful travel narratives have found a regular home in prestigious publications such as the Sydney Morning Herald, the AFR's Life and Leisure, and Condé Nast Traveller. So her voice has been amplified at a global scale. In this conversation, we chat about Nina's recent memoir, The Mindful Traveller, as well as her earlier creation, Go Lightly, and we deliberate about how to make sustainable travel sexy. I hope you enjoy my soft and curious chat with Nina Konikowski. I just firstly want to say thank you so much for coming on, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I, um, I firstly just wanted to start with, I think, just a general question of where you grew up and what maybe happened in your early life to influence you to want to be a writer? Mm, Well, I grew up in a very regular kind of way Mm. in the North Shore of Sydney. And it was at a time when it wasn't, my parents bought a house there when it wasn't fancy and then it became fancy. So I was in a very kind of working class situation, but surrounded by a lot of opportunities. Was that like the the 80s, 90s? The 80s. Yeah. The mid 80s. Yeah. And I was a very quiet kid. I loved spending time on my own. I was afraid of everything. People think that because I'm a travel writer, I must have been really adventurous from the beginning, but I was the opposite. I was afraid of animals. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of sports. So that left writing (laughs) and music. And so I grew up playing the piano and the violin and writing a lot. So I was, I was actually pretty nerdy and I really loved I loved just being in my own thoughts and I would sit there with my little tiny, my first journal was really tiny. I'm talking like three centimetres by five centimetres and I would write my little secrets in there. Oh, like a Polly Pocket kind of journal type thing? Yes, miniature. I loved miniature things too. And then I kind of progressed to the smaller ones with the lock and key And I would write everything in there. I would very much just like I needed to document right yeah. from the beginning. And and little girls get so obsessed with like secrets and their own little secrets. Like, you know, weren't those so funny, those lock and key journals? Exactly. They yeah. were. And and I would confess, I would even like write it in code so that <laughs> no one would know what it was. So I'd be like, I love the guy whose name I wrote in the secret place in my bedroom. And then I would write the guy's name on like the back of a piece of furniture. Oh my gosh. I don't know what <laughs> I thought was happening. Just so cryptic and mystical. Yeah, exactly. oh, that's, that's like, I feel like though we're spending our whole lives trying to get back to that like cryptic mysticism of our childhood that you kind of just naturally find, you know, you've just, you just think everything is a big, you know, awe filled secret that you need to kind of 
you know, hold on to. Yes. And I felt that. Like I used to, we had this little garden, like a little suburban garden, but I loved being in there. And I had like a magnifying glass and an ant farm and, you know, a a little like crystal making kit. And I would Mm. go in there with my magnifying glass and I would like look at the ants and I would look at the lizard eggs and I would be so fascinated by them. And I'd spend all day just looking at these tiny insects and flowers. And I'm like, that has taken me a good 35 years to return to. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, I, I do want to talk about that because I think when when you're writing Meets Travel, um, you've talked about how travel is something that you turn to when you're looking for answers. And so I wanted to ask about, you know, what it is about getting on a plane or in a car or just like physically moving yourself that kind of gives you some kind of clarity. Yeah, I think about that a lot, and I have thought about that a lot over the years. I I think that I felt very almost claustrophobic growing up. I I went to a high school that was very focused on academia, Mm -hmm. and I lived in a household that was very focused on results. And is that was because you're Polish? Your heritage is my mum is Hungarian, my dad is half Polish, half Russian, and. I think it has to do with that, yeah. Are and they I, Australian born? Or my mum is. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was just that thing of, you know, you have all this access to opportunity that your grandparents could have only dreamed of, which mm, I yeah. totally understand. Um, but it did put a lot of pressure on me, and mm. I developed quite a lot of anxiety. I think it was just naturally the way that I was, but also because of that. Mm. And I felt like when I first travelled, which was at the age of 16, I went to France for a month of a school trip thing. And I just was like, oh, my God. As soon as I got away from it, as soon as I was in this other place, I just felt like everything fell away. Mm. And I could not only understand myself more clearly, but I could also appreciate my life at home a lot more because at that time I really was like most 16-year-olds where I just hated everything. And then when I went home, I was like, oh my gosh, Australia is amazing. Our house is great. I love my friends. And I think that kind of sense of perspective is something I really appreciate about the travel experience. And then when I was in university, I did journalism with international studies and I that meant that I had to live overseas for a year. So mm-hmm. I, I went and lived in the south of France and that was the same experience of just like leaving everything behind and being whoever I wanted to be and being able to kind of reinvent yourself mm-hmm. and having no, meeting people with no prior context. I love that. I still really love that about travel when you meet people and you're just people. You've you're not referencing that person by somebody else that you know or putting them in a geographic location that kind of signals who they are in some way. Yeah, everything's sort of new and fresh. Everything is new and fresh and everything is received in a in a new and fresh way. Like a clean slate, like, yeah. you know, this is who I am today and, you know, that's who you are and we're sort of meeting each other in this place. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's that, the Buddhist concept of sort of every day you begin again. Mm-hmm. And you begin again and that beginner's mind. And I feel like that does tie into travel a lot because each trip you take, it's like a new beginning. It's a new place. It's a new you. It's it's new ideas. It's all of that. And you get to begin again. And that can become very addictive. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I feel like every time I've taken a big trip, I've come back with fresh perspective. And even if it is, like you say, kind of a gratitude just for coming home and like yes. feeling like, okay, you know, I'm grateful to be here. But I think if we're t- going to talk about new things, this is your new book and it's The Mindful Traveller. And it's a memoir about traveling with a full heart and a light foot and a clear conscience, which I think is just such a beautiful kind of idea for a book. But I wanted to first mention that Claudia Carvin 
<laughs> is spruiking your book. And um, she starts on the cover by saying it's witty, wise, and lively. Uh, can you tell everyone maybe about the first time that you met Claudia? Oh, my you gosh. Are to I... talk about that? Because <laughs> yes. you've told me this story before, uh, and I just think it's something that so many people can relate to when they meet someone who they just think is so fucking cool. And, you know, because I also have told you about the time that I used to notice Claudia Coven going to my coffee shop and not to make it just about her, but like, you know, she's just got this kind of great, beautiful energy. And obviously I admire her work and I would love to try and be friendly and make friends with her. I didn't have the guts to do so, but you, you did when you were with her. Can you tell everyone about that trip? <laughs> yes. I really love that you brought this up. Only, um, if, you, only if you want to. Uh, no, I yeah. absolutely do. I've been waiting to share it's this It's just so story. relatable. <laughs> yes. So I went on a very special trip towards the end of last year with the Climate Council and Groundswell. It's the Heron Island Fellowship that they do once a year. And so basically... They gather people within the cultural sphere. So it might be artists, writers, actors, musicians, all sorts of people, and basically feed you all this very intense information about the climate, very important information. And then they break you out into groups and they're like, go forth, make things. What ideas can you come up with? Which I just love that concept so much because this is what is needed. We're in a crisis of imagination as much as anything else. Anyway, so we were sort of mid one of these climate workshop things and Claudia was there. Obviously, I clocked that she was there very early on and was sort of like, just be cool. (laughs) When it comes to the time to speak to her, just be cool. Remember that, Nina. Just keep your cool. And I tend to have that thing where I do not keep my cool. And I say, <laughs> and I just say what is there. And even though I've rehearsed something else. Anyway, in my head, my friend Roberto had met her. Mm-hmm. I just could hear him. He's got this beautiful Peruvian accent. I could hear him saying her name in my head. So I was like, so they must have met. So I was like, that's my in. So I turned to Claudia. I'm like, hello, nice to meet you. I'm Nina. I think you're friends with my friend Roberto. <laughs> And she just looks at me completely blankly and she's like, Roberto. I was like, yeah, Roberto. Mm, no, I don't, I don't know like Roberto. She's desperately trying to help she's you out. She's trying. She's like, oh, you mean Roberto from, you know, from the coffee shop? And I'm like, no, no, Roberto <laughs> from Byron. She's like, no, no. And I just finally, I'm like, okay, no, there's no Roberto. Can we start again? Okay. Hi, I'm Nina. And we just start again. And then all I could do was the next time I saw her, I was like, are you Roberto's friend? And yeah. just try to like break you this make terrible spell that I felt like I put <laughs> on myself. Anyway, she is absolutely divine. She's hilarious. She's so real. Yeah. She's strong woman and is also very, very kind. And yeah. when I asked her whether she would read it and endorse it, she was just no questions asked, just went forth, very professional, on time, like all of the things. You know how when you put you might put that out to like five people. Yeah, and so it's, what is the process of getting someone to be on the front quote of the book? Because well, I yeah. always I always see them and I'm like, oh, do, like are they friends? Do they read it? Or is it the book companies that do it? Like what is what is the process? Well yeah, I don't know if there's like a set process, but in this case, it was one of the first things that happened mm. because it needs to happen obviously pretty early because they need to get it on the cover. So I had to send a a draft that wasn't fully finished. And basically you send it to anybody in your sphere who you think might want to help out, who you probably do have a relationship with because otherwise they're unlikely to do it. Although I did approach Liz Gilbert. Oh, and? And I didn't hear back, but you know. I'm sure she gets like like millions. Of course. But I was like. I love your play. I know. I was just like, yes. I have a husband who's very much like that. He was like, Oh, Claudia, hey. Well, and what? who else? Like Liz Gilbert? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah Oprah. good point. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. That he said Oprah. He yeah. said Oprah. So anyway, that's kind of how it goes. And it's just interesting because you put that call out to, say, five people. Mm. And from my experience, it's often the one who you think is the most 
important who has the most to do who'll do it. Oh, right. You know, you because think- they can kind of, they're used to getting things done. You know, it's it's like if you need something done, you ask the busiest person. Yeah, they know it, the professional angle to it. They're like, this is actually why they're asking me. It's not like a ego flattery type thing. It's like, yeah. no, it's because I'm well. Like, because obviously, yeah, her interest and being on Heron Island with you is like, well-placed. So, and I found the book very beautiful and witty and inspiring as well. I felt like um, the way that you opened it with your trip to the Arctic and the way you talked about how it was devastatingly beautiful and your encounter with the beluga whales and Mm -hmm. then your encounter with the polar bears. And you kind of talk about um, this... You talk about this again in your book where you t- where you go to the Great Barrier Reef and then there's coral that you saw once before that was dead. You know, there is this idea of you're going on these travels and then you're physically seeing what people have maybe written about or told you about. You know, because we all know people going to these places and they tell us, okay, this is actually what it looks like or, you know, it's stunning but this is the shocking reality behind it. And um, you quoted Joanna Macy In your book, she's a well-known climate activist as well. And she said, When we dare face the cruel social and ecological realities we have been accustomed to, powers within us are liberated to reimagine and even perhaps one day rebuild a world. And I just thought if I have to tie together what I kind of got out of your book from the very beginning, it's that you were like there bearing witness straight away. So can you tell us about your that first trip to the Arctic and how that kind of shaped this idea in your mind about what you need to really be writing about? So I had seen what you're talking about. I had seen that numerous times before the Arctic. Okay. So I had been to Borneo and I had driven for like eight hours, I think, one day, something like that, and it was just palm oil forests right after going to see orangutans in old-growth forest. Mm. And then you see the devastation that those palm oil forests have caused. And that was one example that really stood out to me, but there were so many like that, going to beaches that were meant to be pristine but that actually had all this trash on, upon them every single morning, but it's just that they'd clean it up yeah. before the tourists arrived. All I've those sorts that. of That's things. Shocking. It's shocking. And I just, I guess it was an accumulation of things like that. Mm. And then when I arrived in the Arctic, so it's a town called Churchill. It's the polar bear capital of the world. I know that in, sounds that just, I had never heard of this place. And I think it just sounds so amazing that they really are just kind of roaming around and like breaking into things. Breaking into people's <laughs> kitchens. Can you imagine? Yeah, but because so, they're desperate. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. Mm. So um, 900 polar bears to 800 people in the summer season. So, I mean, it's not like there's 900 polar bears in the street, but they're in the region and they do happen to cross town and they have like a polar bear jail there where sometimes <laughs> if a polar bear has broken into somebody's house and all the locals have a story, yeah, they have to um, put it to sleep and then take it to the this jail until they can find a way to get it back to its natural habitat and hope that it doesn't return. Yeah. Anyway, so see, going out and seeing them, there was just this moment where our tourist boat was following two polar bears this is one really clear memory of like the first time that I really like the first time I made eye contact with a polar bear. Mm. We were we were kind of traveling along beside them and they were doggy paddling through the water. And they were looking back at us, but kind of in a way that was like, hey, like we need some space. How far Can away you, were you? Not that far. I'm mm. gonna say 10 meters or oh, something. Wow. Yeah. Um and those sort of things always make me feel uncomfortable. There's so many wildlife encounters like that where you're like, should we be this close? Should we even be here full stop? Yeah. Um, most wildlife encounters, you feel that way at some point. Even yes. if it's done in such a beautiful way, you're like, maybe it's better that just this doesn't happen at all. Yeah. But then there's this element, which is that I saw those polar bears and then I went on later that afternoon to learn about the plight of the polar bears, which is that because of the melting of the sea ice, which is happening earlier, their feeding and breeding uh, season is shorter, Mm. which means that, of course, they're 
everything is affected by that and their population is dwindling. And also because there's less ice, some of them drown actually Mm. because they can't get onto the ice. There's all these sorts of horrible things happening. And like they only have this short window to really kind of like, you know, exist in certain spaces. Exactly. And the, the ecosystem has to play ball for them to move in that cycle, right? That's right. Mm. Yeah. And so so receiving all of that information and and having eye contact with a polar bear on the same day, it just hit me in this way that I wasn't expecting. Mm. And I was at the airport after that experience on my way home and I was just looking around being like, Look at these thousands of people running off everywhere around the world. This thing that I love to do so much, but I know it's I know it's directly causing this horrible thing that I've just learned about. And I just sat there feeling supremely uncomfortable and just really actually dropping into that feeling and being like, just remember this. Don't forget this. Mm-hmm. You know those moments in life where it's just horrible but you, you... Crisis of conscience. Yeah, and you yeah. kind of want to hold on to it because you know that you have to grasp those moments mm-hmm. because they're the moments that shape us. Yeah, they're real. Like mm-hmm. that's the moment where you're like, oh, wow, I'm really like teetering on the edge of like what kind of person Am I, I want to be? be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I went home and I was, you know, pretty quiet for a little little bit thinking, what am I going to do? And then I thought, I don't know exactly, but what I know I need to do is take a break, mm-hmm. first of all. And so I put out this declaration of to my editors of like, I need some time off, which is also a huge privilege because this is my livelihood. Yeah, you're and like I'm putting you're a successful my... freelance travel journalist, which is hard to do because that's years of contacts and, yes. you know, building those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I had been very strong for the years before that, that that was the only thing I was going to do. I wanted yeah. to only do that one thing. Yeah. So I didn't do any other kind of writing. Mm. And so... um but I thought I've got to make a change. I don't know what it will be, but I need time to figure that out. And so that was when it really all began. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, reading your book though, I think it's really important that people realize that it's not, you're not saying like, don't travel. This isn't an end to the idea of going traveling. But I think maybe we can just touch on what you think traveling should look like. You know, how is... Um, you know, I guess it's just like less private jets. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> because you, it really shocked me this statistic that you had, which was six percent of people have only six percent of people have ever been on an airplane. Isn't like, it that's shocking? Wild. And when you consider the millions and millions and millions of flights each year, like that's nuts. And also, you think every single person you know probably mm. has been on a plane, which really brings into stark relief the disparity that yeah. is is the world. And yeah, it's it's this thing of, I often joke, like I feel like the Grinch who stole travel. <laughs> so when people hear about like sustainable travel, mindful travel, anything like this, they're like, oh, don't you take my travel well, from it, me. It's so much a part of people's identity. It's And, you know, and even social, like kind of the way they want to place themselves. I was I was thinking about this because like, you know, there is this lifestyle creep that I think we get into, which, mm-hmm. you know, once upon a time being on a train or at a campsite was like enough. That was like the perfect way to see Europe or, you know, Africa or wherever, you know, the wind blew that you wanted to go to, to learn about the place and that kind of like gritty travel. And then now this lifestyle creep is, especially when I'm noticing like people mid thirties, like you know, my age, where they don't really want to travel that way, which is fine. But they also, it's more about like the way they want to show that they're traveling, you know, on yes. on social media and stuff. So I guess for me, it's like, can we make slow travel sexy? Like, can we oh. make it a way where people, you know, can you do luxury slow travel? Like, is oh. that a thing? Yes. I love that so much, <laughs> that phrase. This is one of my best friends is, is quite an important activist. Mm-hmm. And she and I often and talk about this where we're like, how do we make it sexy? How do we make it the thing that everybody wants to do? How do we get people on board because with it's these just ideas? Marketing an idea of like, you know, because that's the thing. And no one 
I, I don't feel like I knew anyone growing, growing up that went overseas every single year. But no. now I feel like that's what people do. Yes. That it's the creep of the lifestyle because it's such a part of your status. So if you're taking it away and you're turning around and being like, oh, you can't travel or you can't travel like that. Yeah, like people are going to unsubscribe. That's right. Yes, <laughs> yes. And and I know I've lost people to that, even though I do try to like make it exciting. Yeah. But it's interesting because you're taking this thing that people invest their three most important resources in, time, money, energy, mm. this thing that is the kind of gold bar at the end of the rainbow yes. of the year or of the season or whatever it is. They've earned it. They've like, earned which people it. have earned a right to travel and go places. Right, exactly. But what I'm saying is, like, we are not giving this up. Mm. It's just giving up those all of the stuff that is kind of superfluous. So what I am advocating for is slower, so going less places, but staying for longer. Mm -hmm. So people like me who are going 12 times a year, I'm no longer doing that. I'm yeah. going one or two times overseas a year and I'm staying for longer because mm. obviously I still need to get work. So for instance, last year I went to India and Nepal for about five weeks mm -hmm. and I made sure that I could do trips back to back. And that's and just because of the plane, like over, like that kind of correct. That carbon emitting yeah, load. Yeah, that but coupled with, because one of the biggest things is like, how do we give back to mm -hmm. places? And this doesn't have to be, this is also not a killjoy thing of people being like, oh, was she going to tell us to go and build a toilet block somewhere or, you know, <laughs> it's actually not that because a lot of the time that is not helpful yeah. at all. You've really got to look into those things yes. because it's it could be taking away from jobs from locals, those sorts of things. You can give back in so many different ways. Like there's amazing conservation-focused safari camps or there's mm -hmm. like the thing I did in India last year with Sahili women, which is all based on ethical fashion. So you get to go and spend time with these incredible Indian women and see, learn how to create these Indian handicrafts while helping to fund the amazing work that they are doing that's like UN recognized. What an amazing experience that you can take with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. But then the other way to give back is just spending as many of your travel dollars, bearing in mind that 6% of us are traveling, that tiny percent. I know, percent. it's such a tiny fraction. So the money that we have that we can put into these places, making sure that it stays in those places because there's this term leakage that I think I mentioned in the book, which is 95% um, of the travel dollars that we spend, 95% of that leaks out of the destination. So you think of like internationally owned hotel chains, internationally owned restaurants, internationally produced mass goods, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's all leakage. Yeah. So you want to find out what is the locally owned hotel. Like I stayed in the Happy House last year, this gorgeous beautiful Sherpa house in the Nepalese Himalayas. And it's, you know, all staffed by Sherpas. And they have all these amazing social impact projects where they give back to the local, um, the local hospital and the local monastery. So you're looking out for things like that. Yeah. Directly kind of going into the community instead exactly. of the profits going offshore, like you say. Totally. Which yeah. means it actually makes for such a much richer and more exciting travel experience anyway because it's yeah. authentic and you meet friends from those places and you actually get to integrate into the local community and that's also why it's beneficial to stay in one place for longer because you know what it's like you're in somewhere for three days you're not going to meet anybody you're not going to have any way of kind of continuing that relationship. Mm. I think when you stay for a long time, you know, now I have friends in India and Nepal that I can go back and visit when I'm there and have a more lasting impact in that way. And if everybody was traveling in that way, imagine how beautiful it would be. We would have these really tight bonds. It would be that like web that we kind of, I think most of us dream of. Mm -hmm. It's just like helping people figure out how that looks and actually that it's a lot easier than I than we might think it is. Well, I, I, I hope and I feel like anecdotally I'm noticing like the fatigue of people like just posting pictures that's on a, you know, mountain somewhere that someone's done a million times before like we really are starting to see through those experiences and realizing like when you go there yeah there's a line full of people standing at the tip of Machu Picchu you know taking their picture it's not interesting anymore it's like not. you could just 
do that on, you know, your phone, like Photoshop. Like it's just not interesting. Totally. And look, I'm still making mistakes all the time, by the way. So here's an example on exactly that thing. (laughs) So a couple of weeks ago, I went to Uluru with one of my closest friends and we went and we did this beautiful, deep listening to nature retreat with a former frontline activist who's very integrated in the Ananu Indigenous community there. So she was sort of the bridge between between the Indigenous community and us. And the first couple of days, we went and stayed at a very high and beautiful place. And we, I forgot everything that I'd ever said. And I was there just snapping away a million photos and, you know, just sipping champagne at the rock. It was amazing. Well, it's intoxicating. It's like, intoxicating. You know, it is nice to lean into luxury sure. travel. Sure. They yes. make the environment. It's like being in a casino. Exactly. Like, you know, yes. it's curated for you to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it was delightful. But yeah. then cut to starting the retreat and our host said, you know, this is a sacred place. So when we approach Uluru, we're going to do that with reverence. We're going to do that gently. We're going to do it slowly. And if you're going to take a photograph, really digest the moment inside yourself first before you snap the photo. And my friend and I kind of looked at each other like, eek, too late. But in that moment, it it was so profound because before we even got to Uluru, she stopped the vehicle halfway there and she said, okay, get out of the car and let Uluru see you. Mm. And the switching of that lens, I just tears immediately because imagining this 60-million-year-old formation that has been there through everything, this sacred land with these people who have lived here for 60,000 years shepherding that, being custodians of that, and then having that see me, it just switched the lens completely and immediately dropped me into a whole different way of thinking. And I was able to have these very, very special days after that where I suddenly was like remembering that, oh yeah, nature can be our mentor and you can look to nature for even if it's just in, oh yeah, nature is patient because it takes a long time to grow. Nature is generous because it gives without expecting anything in return. Really remembering all of those things because we were approaching the environment in just the right way. Yeah. And it's sort of ancestrally connecting, like, you know, because you're realizing like, I'm far less impermanent than she is. Like, you know, and imagine what she's seen. And now I'm going to like, it's it's very humbling, like, you know, just to be humbled by something like that. And I think that it's, it, right? Like maybe you did need a guide to kind of show you that you needed to, you know, because we do, we go to those places and, and um, I've not been to Uluru. I would like, I'd love to go, but I have, I've been to lots of different places where I feel like it really does matter who's telling the story mm-hmm. and who's framing the experience for you. Yes. And we're less and less guided now. We're like sort of just looking up on, not no shade, because there's some beautiful people on YouTube and online that kind of have a really reverent view of things. But I think when we go and do it by ourselves, just based on a lot of the like surface level stuff that we've consumed. It it takes someone to kind of drop you in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking more and more about how we do that. I'm running a trek in Nepal next year and I'm like, how, how do we get to that place? How do we get there? And it's a lot of slowness. Yeah. And I think it's going back to the first point of like, it get, that's what makes you seek like you know when you're that is why you get up and move when you need an answer to a big question Mm -hmm. and if you're not sitting out there listening like you know and letting it change you instead of like okay we've got three days in Milan and then we've got two days in Rome and then we've got you know and no like some people really do have to squeeze things in if they need to see people or whatever but like that's that's a different reason for traveling exactly yes and I think on that It's also about getting really clear on your intention Mm -hmm. before you go somewhere. So it's like, why am I actually going to this place? And what would I like to come out the other end feeling? Or what would I like to receive? Mm. And I think 
when we drop into that, it's a whole lot easier to do things in the right way because you keep coming back to that. Mm. You know, in Uluru, it was like, okay, I'm here to, I was there to really ground down and I was there to understand my role as caretaker in the world. Yeah. And, and I, just having that intention every day really changed the way that I behaved in that place. And I think even if your intention is just like, I just need to have fun, which by the way, in Uluru was half the women's intentions. Yeah. I just want to have fun. fun I want to love. Yes. Respect culture. Like, of you know, course. you can still have fun and yeah. And and it's not yeah, you're not being a party pooper. No. By saying that it's like, you know, just come away with a little bit of like both. Hopefully you're having fun and still being able to like sip some champagne. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I, I mean, I feel like, well, that's sexy. I think that that's yeah. a sexy way to kind of make slow travel. <laughs> More of that content, please. Yes. Um, I think um, what I was going to say was, actually, I wanted to talk about when you came back from the Arctic and you kind of fell into this really, um, that that kind of crisis of conscience um, or is it conscious of Christ? No, I'm getting that crisis, crisis of conscience. conscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conscious of Christ. <laughs> and when you kind of fell into that space, and it was, and it was, you know, reading about it in the book, it was really heavy, actually. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that you you were kind of getting really depressed by those feelings, and and it was all doom and gloom. Um, and I think people can relate to that. Where you, some, sometimes you know you've seen something, and it's just irrevocably changed you or just kind of put this, you know, doomy uh, glint on everything. Mm -hmm. And you talked about um, where you went to a party and you were wearing a silky dress and it had endangered, it just happened to have a print of all these endangered animals on it. And you found yourself like, you know, trying to let your hair down, but still being overcome by these intense feelings of, you know, the the planet is on fire. Um, And then you were like, quietly evangelizing to people in the party. (laughs) Um, Firstly, was the dress silk laundry? It was. This is silk laundry. I'm wearing it right now. I guessed it when you, (laughs) I guessed it when you, um, when you mentioned it, I was like, I I think I know that print. Um, But also, yeah. How do you balance those feelings when, have you seen Don't Look Up? That, oh, that movie? Of course. Because Multiple times. Yeah, and that's like mm. an allegory for climate change, mm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And um and they and, and Jennifer Lawrence and she's she's trying to run run around the world and everyone's just acting so normal and she's like, you you know, the world is on fire. Um how how is it trying to balance those feelings and like how did you get out of it? Or are you out of it? I don't think I am completely I don't know if I ever will because we live in such a polarized world where people are experiencing more than ever very different realities and are willing to open their eyes to a certain extent or not, all of that. Um, So after the Arctic, obviously in Australia, we had the terrible Black Saturday bushfires. Mm. Then we had a flood that our house um, got partially flooded. We lost both our cars, our office, all that sort of thing. It was super heavy time. And really, I'm a sensitive person and trying to understand, like, how are we meant to continue just living and pretending everything is okay? And going to parties. And going to parties and clinking our champagne. I just couldn't at that time. And I couldn't see a clear way forward. And actually, when I saw Don't Look Up, I felt so seen actually because I I was like I know how that feels I feel like that person and you know the person at the party yes being like oh do you like this dress I mean we're in a podcast right now so I'm ready to receive this information but like how do you talk to people yeah Mm. yeah so as you said before it gets to the like okay there's two elements to this so how did I square it within myself because I really needed help with figuring out how to do that, you know, and there was therapy involved and there was psychedelic therapy involved and there was a lot of time in the natural world because that was where everything felt like it made the most sense to me. And I felt like when I was there, I could see more clearly what was required of me and also what brought me joy and what might bring other people joy. Because I was like, how do we inspire people to act on this? Because I tell you what, like, we know all the facts at this point. Like I'm quite 
I'm quite confident that we know the facts. People are aware. And that beating people over the head with it and the doom and gloom, it's actually not working. So Mm. how do we really inspire people with these concepts? Because I think it is possible to regenerate the world. Mm. It's just going to require a different totally different way of thinking. Yeah, different approach. Because even if there's comments in the sky, people are still going to question, you know, the legitimacy of everything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So how do we excite people into it? How do we get people to just have a completely different lens on the world? So I'm often thinking about those things. And I was trying to do that in myself as well. So really trying to get to that place where I could see the natural world as alive was key to that because I, I felt like I had lost that. I also felt like I'd lost my trust with the natural world because when the country that you live in has been through floods and fires, you sort of start to think, am I safe here? Am I, has nature got my back? Which I really always yeah, Does used she want to us here? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I, but I really felt that connection get forged so strongly and I feel so, more strongly than ever before that Like our job here is just to love the world, like love it and bring all our joy and our pain and our look at the beauty, look at the ugliness, like just take it all in, use it all as fuel to try to create that thing that every single one of us is equipped to create. And it looks different for every single person, Mm. but like use all of that and feel, like feel it all. And just take what we need, maybe, like yeah. instead of too much. Like, oh, yes, you know. exactly. That's And that's, again, coming back to like what would nature do? It doesn't take too much. Mm. It's not hoarding. It's not using too many resources. It's actually got this restorative, natural restorative ability. Mm. And it has that because it's not greedy. And so how do we temper our greed and how do we, yeah, I think, I think we also really need more delighted humans because I'll tell you what, like when I was in that place where I felt shut down, like I wasn't, I don't think I was doing very great things because Mm -hmm. I felt shut down in certain ways. Um, Whereas now when I'm in a place of delight and I come to it from a place of like, oh my God, how amazing is the world and how magical is it? It's actually truly magical. Yeah. And when you can see that, it makes you, you know, we protect what we love is is that phrase that we all know. And so we, our job is to just fall in love with the world. And that can look like so many different things to all of us. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with that. And I also think that apart, yeah, the earth is just naturally a delighted kind of existing, living, breathing ball of energy. But then also it's 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 just trusting in abundance. Mm. And it, that's why I think it doesn't take too much because it doesn't think that it's going to run out because it just thinks, oh, well, we're just sitting in this beautiful, delicate ecosystem. It doesn't really know maybe what's happening. And yet we're the ones who maybe need to reflect that, you know, that we need to have a little bit more of a spirit of abundance and that stops us from hoarding and being greedy and, yes. you know, just to like bring it around where if if you do feel like you have enough and like, you know, the toilet paper is not going to run out. You're not going to be one of those COVID hoarding toilet paper people. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Or just yes, with anything in life. With everything, totally. And, you know, I, I tell this story in the book about this thing called the South Indian monkey trap, which is like this coconut. They use it in a certain part of the world. It's, it's actually awful to, to trap monkeys. But <gasps> the monkey will put its hand in. So they have like sweet sweets inside the coconut. And so the monkey puts its hand in, it takes the sweet, but because its fist is clenched around the thing that it wants, it can't get its hand back out of the coconut and then it's caught. And it could just drop the sweet and it could take its hand out and be free. Oh, wow. But the monkey doesn't because the monkey really wants that thing. And that's us. Yeah. We're so addicted to all of the things. And, you know, you can be as awake as you want to be. Um and still be addicted to the system that got us into this. I think about it every day. I'm still part of this system. I still need, you know, I still need certain things to literally fuel my life. Yeah, putting value on the wrong things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and if we were able to just drop that ball, we could be free. Mm. 
But it do, that story makes me think like it is in our nature almost to like want to grasp on. So it's just kind of replacing that desire with something else. Mm. You know, like how do we take the delight away from the fast cars and the multiple homes and the private jet trips? And how do we go, what about delighting in the natural world and growing food? Growing yeah. food is such a great way to get started on loving the natural world because when you when you make something and it grows and then you eat it, there's nothing more satisfying. No, I, I, I actually wanted to talk about that because you kind of reflected that in your book where you said that COVID gave you time to, it's more of a question about you being creative, but like COVID gave you the time to really delight in gardening mm-hmm. and like being in your backyard and being like, you know, wonderstruck by like the little sprouting leaves and all that kind of stuff. And I think that um, you sort of said how, you know, there was busyness before and you were, you know, everyone was always bragging about their busyness and how it became so much of an identity for people where they were just constantly compulsively busy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, can you talk about more about that and maybe how you kind of tried to retrain your brain and and not feel like that was just a part of your identity if you were busy that you weren't you know if you were just taking things slow you weren't being useless or worthless totally yes (laughs) yeah because this busy is a badge of honor thing Mm -hmm. like and I didn't say that judgmentally in the book at all because I was the one doing that almost most of all Mm. you know I I really had to be faced with who am I without all the fancy travel stories, you mm. know, who am I to turn up at a dinner at a dinner and be like, oh, I don't have a, I don't have a good story to tell. So who yeah. am I without that? And I really had to figure that out. And I think that it's, it's just the way that, that we are, where we do tend to kind of compete with each other in that way. But um, and it's sort of our value in terms of our careers as well. Like I'm wanted, I'm wanted. I'm like wanted. people want me to do this. People want me to do that. Like exactly. It's sort of like oh, no one. Especially when you're a creative, it's like oh, no one's commissioned me. Yeah. No one's hired me. No one wants me right now. Like exactly. I'm not hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I was like searching for those things to kind of bring me that sense of of worth and connection. Mm. And so. I signed up to go and do these volunteer farming days, which is funny because actually we used to live on a farm um, for many years. And Pete, Pete your, yes, your husband my husband is a, a winemaker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So his family had a vineyard in the Hunter Valley and we at Biodynamic Vineyard. It was so beautiful. Lived there for many years. But like a lot of the time I was traveling and I wasn't, you know, I was sort of like, oh, that's his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I signed up for this program and I would go and do this volunteer farming for like three hours a week. Was it initially just to be busy? It was to, it was to, yeah, I guess fill a bit of a a void of of time and Mm -hmm. what am I doing? And, but also this desire to really like actually get my hands in the earth. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, I wanted to feel that. I wanted to I wanted to get to that place. And I was like, if I'm signed up to this thing, I have to show up. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, learning through the beautiful women who ran that all about the mycelial network that lies beneath everything. And we'd have to get like compost with all mycelium in there. You know, the mycelial network is essentially fungus that connects every living thing beneath the soil. So it's this web that is beneath our feet, every step that we take. And the more I learn about that, like you can't feel alone. You can't feel purposeless when you start to learn about these things because you're like, we are all made of the same stuff. Like Mm. we are all made of these webs of different organisms and we are all connected in that way. And I think you wrote like a handful of healthy soil is more, more, microorganisms than is in or, or more microorganisms that's in the human body or something like that or yes. is that you that wrote that yeah yes. yeah exactly so there's this connection and and Pete my husband used to tell me when he was biodynamic farming he, he was like you know the health of our bodies 
is the health of the soil. Like mm. it's it's all connected. Yeah. And that's why I think a lot of people are getting more sick is because the soil is degraded, you know. So being part of at this farmer enriching soil and bringing life to it, I felt like I was bringing life back to myself. Mm. And a lot of people were there doing the same thing. You know, there was a guy who was going through, like he'd been through serious drug addiction and he was coming out of it and he was doing that too. There was a girl there who was really at a crisis with her career trying to figure it out. And I just saw this link between everyone. Oh, we're all here for this reason to bring ourselves back to life, to show ourselves new life through using our hands, putting them in the soil. Wow, isn't that an interesting through line, like for everyone doing it? Like it wasn't promoted as something like no, that. No, not at all. It was no. just like come and come and do this thing, um, a fun like a way therapy. to spend a few hours and they would give you food at the end of it. So it was like this nice reciprocity. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it really, it really reinvigorated my desire to get into the garden and then, you know, um, Pete kind of helped me get this little tiny patch in our garden because I was like, I got to start small. And I had like four different types of plants or something in there. And I just got so much joy. They'd give me like a clipping on the farming day of um, Tulsi basil. Mm. And it was nothing. It was just a stick. I thought, how is this going to work? And just seeing it flourish over the time, I was like, oh, that is so special to like be given this thing and bring it to life and just... um, to feel that sense of of caretaking. Yeah, isn't it great? Like I've just started a little herb garden too. And I it's because I always wanted to have a big garden. I still do. But you just have to start somewhere. And even if it's just a pot of mint, it's like mint is the greatest plant to grow for your gateway to confidence. Like you can't with, kill with, it. You can't kill it. And it will definitely grow. Like put it under a dripping tap and it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And like you yes. get so delighted at like the little sprigs coming off it. You're like, oh my God, there's another one. There's another one. And it really is. It's like, I think Martha Stewart, I was listening to a podcast and she's like, I feed my plants in the morning before I like and water them before I feed myself, mm-hmm. like my plants and animals. And it is, it's just such a like, you've, you've kind of have this nice ritual of like giving back before you kind of take, you know, exactly. And it's exactly. a nice thing to do. I found it very meditative. Yeah, like I and, wish I did it before. Yeah, mm. exactly. And like nourishing something that is then going to nourish you. Yeah, you know. And also, I think in taking care of plants, we're really taking care of ourselves as well. You know, like I interviewed a woman named Amber Tam, who's this amazing black farmer in the states who for my first book, who she Make, had, make a Living Living. Was that yes, that one? Yeah. yeah. And she she had had this horrible situation where her mother was murdered by her father. Mm. And she obviously fell into an incredibly deep depression after that and had $1,000 left in the bank. And she said, I, she was in the art, in the arts before that. And she said, I just received this message from I don't know where that just I needed to spend that thousand dollars on plants so she just went out and bought plants and just started planting and she's in New York you know she she was like wherever I could like I just a did it not, no. a, not a huge plot of land or anything yeah no wow. and now she's a farmer because she said you know every time I was planting something I was putting my my pain in the soil and turning it into food yeah wow and it's so it is it's just so gratifying when you get to even eat something that you've grown because you're like I know where this came from I nurtured it yeah not to mention so nourishing yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well I mean I've still got a long way to go (laughs) the the birds keep nicking my tomatoes well I wanted to just quickly talk about as well like your new uh venture into trying to encourage people to write and that is through your cards which are called the writer within and they're available now you sent me a copy which i've i've yet to use them because i only got them yesterday um and you're you're yet to be converted and and i was saying i'm not yeah like journaling doesn't really i have never found i know that people find that journaling really helps them like metabolize what's going on in their life like you know that really helps them for me i haven't done it yet but I'm I'm curious and I think that these cards are such a interesting kind of 
I was reading the prompts and I'm thinking, wow, that is really interesting. Like, you know, how you talk about the hungry Buddha and like write in your hungry hungry Buddha. Do you want to, do you want to, yeah, hungry ghost, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So first of all, we are all writers. Like I've so often teach writing workshops and say like, who considers herself a writer? And maybe like three out of 12 will put up their hands. And I'm always like, no, this is something we are all born to do. Mm. And sometimes it just takes going and trying it to get people on board. And it really is, I love that word that you used just before, metabolize. Mm. Like it really does help metabolize life. But also, as you said, see life as if it could be otherwise. So I really, in designing those cards, um, that really came out of the whole COVID experience. I started doing these little right on um, like Instagram live writing classes because I wanted to connect with other people. And I thought, you know, what can I offer in this space to help kind of soothe people in this time? And I find writing so soothing. And so started doing it that way. And people were just like, wow, can I have more prompts? How, how do I continue with this thing? Because I just find I'm writing about the same old thing every day. It's tedious. It's self-indulgent. So I thought, okay, how can I do this so that it's like getting deep within ourselves, but also out of ourselves. Oh, yeah, and that's really, perfect. Oh, and yeah. really examining the way that we're living and looking at life as if it could be otherwise. Because, you know, circling back to the beginning of this conversation when we said as much as anything we're living in a crisis of imagination, mm-hmm. I think if we can all, like, look at the way we're living and the and the world we might want to build, that's such a place to start because we can't build it if we can't imagine it mm. first. Um, so the hungry ghost thing, coming back to that. I'm sorry, um, hungry ghost. It's hungry, hungry which is Buddhism. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah you, you were exactly right. Um, the hungry ghost is this concept in Buddhism, which is this... It's like a, it's a character that has this um, big, big, big stomach and a little mouth and it can't get enough in. Like it's, it's this hung, desperate hunger all the time. And, you know, that it's that desire that we all have for just more, more, more. Like a desperate. Yes. Yeah. And we all have it that addiction for just Mm -hmm. more. I had it with travel. I still have it with a lot of things where you just, it's, it's in us, but it's, and it's not like you can, you, or even want to eradicate it. It's just noting it and going, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, Look at my hungry ghost today, Mm -hmm. wanting the second pair of shoes this week or like whatever it is. And just being like, ah, okay, check that. And I get people in that exercise to like write as their hungry ghost. Like, what is it that you're wanting? And like, how desperately does that part of yourself? Like, yeah. 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 And, and it's the interesting thing about writing is that journaling in this way is that once you've written it down, it's often out of you. Mm. It's this incredible form of almost alchemy Mm -hmm. where you write it down and it's no longer with you. So not to say that it's going to completely eradicate your desire, but I definitely have found that if I'm obsessing, you know, there'll be big things. I'm like, I want to be part of this protest and I want to write this important story. But there's also this narrative in my head that's like, should I get that pair of pants? Oh my God, I really want that shirt. It's just like, and it won't go away. And I'm like, I have stuff to do, hungry ghost. Leave me alone. And then I'll like write about it and then it's gone. And that voice quietens. It's acknowledged. It's acknowledged, it's processed, it's metabolized. Exactly. And this is why I this Mm. is why I advocate for that 20 minutes every single morning, as Julia Cameron suggested in the artist's way, Mm -hmm. 20 minutes without stopping every single morning, get rid of all that stuff or create some new neural pathways through using some of those other prompts. And then it's gone. Mm. You know, I did a writing workshop, run a writing workshop just the other day, where at the end of it I said, okay, now rip out what you just did and rip it up, tear it up. And everybody's like, oh, but I'm, but I've created something. And it's like, it's not about the outcome. Mm. This is about the process. It's about purging yourself of these things. Mm. You can keep it if you want. I mean, I have definitely many, many, many journals at home in these big boxes that I can't quite part with, but it's a beautiful thing to, to release. Yeah. And then it's gone. Yeah. I, I, think I need to get into it because I I feel like opposite of what you've 
just explained, I've always thought of journaling as a little like self-indulgent and a little bit like just, you know, this is what I think about this. And like, you know, but you do need to kind of get outside yourself and like maybe imagine the other side of, you know, an argument or imagine the other side of an experience or something like that. And then you can kind of be able to process things from different points of view. Exactly, because it can be. It yeah. can become really self-indulgent if you're just left to your own devices. Yeah, and, yeah. I you know, I have a prompt in there that's like that's like write about an object. Mm. And the other day when I did it in this workshop that I was running, I wrote about my phone, like to my phone. Mm. And suddenly you're like outside of yourself and you're thinking about the phone and like the role that it's playing in everybody's lives and like and what is it made it of? Where did it come from? <laughs> you know, and that and that takes you out of yourself and it takes you to completely different places. It's a way to get more creative. Yes. Imaginative. So many benefits. Well, I can't wait to go and try. I can't and wait for you to do it. I I just really it's been a delight to talk to you in this way we're you know we're already friends but it's nice to kind of like nail down you know your new pursuit which is you know this book which I love I really really enjoyed reading it oh thank you Jess I've loved this so much thank you (laughs) thank you thank you for spending this time with yourself and the soft and curious if you enjoyed please rate and review this episode and share it with your friends it's how we grow I hope you're feeling joyful and kind. This episode was made on Bundjalung Country. It was produced and presented by me, Jessica Lay, and technical production and arrangement by Podpaste. Thank you to Blueberry Music Studio, where we record.